I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. First of all, I have to just say, and I always say this because it's very true, we don't know that the drug will have an effect at all on humans. We don't know. So that's the first thing. But let's suppose they do. As far as we know, it would be as though it would take you two days to age as much as you now age in one day. Okay, so you would spend a lot more time being young, but then you would also spend more time being old. There's one more thing though that's good, which is that in animals, these drugs, they seem to have very beneficial effects on diseases. There's less cancer, the heart is is much better. It seems like the brain is better. So it's not really clear what will happen, but at least if we go by what we see in animals, the diseases of aging seem to be pushed out, that is later in time, and if anything, they seem less severe. That's Cynthia Kenyon. 20 years ago, I sat with her in her lab at UC San Francisco and watched one of the most remarkable microscope images I've ever seen, before or since. Two minuscule worms, nematodes, one vigorous and unblemished, the other pockmarked and lethargic, yet both the same age. Cynthia had changed just a single gene in the first worm, which now lived twice as long as its geriatric companion. It was a major turning point in the study of aging, and it opened the door to a flood of research offering the possibility of extending not just the worm's lifespan, but yours and mine. This is so great to have a chance to catch up with you again. You know, I've been reliving the day we spent in your lab 20 years ago. I've been reliving it for 20 years and giving my friends a blow-by-blow account of what, what I saw. It was, it was one of the most interesting conversations I ever had on lab. You were letting us know that on the horizon somewhere is the possibility of our living a lot longer. Yes. And that was 20 years ago. What, how are you doing with your worms now that you got to live twice their lifespan. Well, first of all, I want to agree with you that, I mean, the significance of that was amazing. You change one gene only, and the whole animal ages much more slowly and lives twice as long. And it's just a little worm. So you could say, well, it's just a worm thing, which people said. Um, <laughs> but then people change the same gene in fruit flies, which are different from the little worms. And they also change the similar genes in the mouse and in all these cases, the animals age more slowly and live longer, a lot longer. And so I think before that time, we didn't think it was possible. People used to think, well, you'd have to, you'd have, to have one, one way to fix the skin, another way to fix the heart, the intestine, everything. You'd, mm. It would be very difficult to fix everything. So the idea that you could change one gene, in fact, one DNA base pair in one gene, and have this whole transformation changed everything, really. Why is it that changing only one gene can affect the whole system? It turns out that the gene that was changed is kind of a master regulator. So we change one gene, but the gene that we change, that we change controls other genes. There's a whole, it, it really orchestrates a, a huge number of genes, like a thousand or so. So many things change in the animal. And the end result is that the animal is much more resilient. It's resistant to all sorts of conditions that would normally kill an animal, like high temperature, um, the wrong salt concentration, um, pathogens, many, many things. 
practically everything. What it tells us is that animals have the ability to be a lot more resilient than they normally are, and that will increase its lifespan. So there's something I don't quite get here. If there's a gene that can help resist pathogens and other other life-threatening situations, why doesn't nature fix the gene to start with? How do we wind up with a gene that's making us die when it is? Well, first of all, it looks as though during evolution, the set point of the system changed so that you're just born, animals with longer lifespans are just born being more resilient. So it's as if what you can turn on in the worm, this resiliency program, um, by changing a gene has already been changed in evolution so that it's on at a higher level normally in, in an animal. Mm. That's maybe part of the reason that, say, a mouse lives longer than a fruit fly. But even then, in the mouse and in the fruit fly, you can still hit the system and turn on the resiliency even more. You've seen mice live how much longer than normal? About 50% longer than normal. There's a whole network of interacting genes here, and depending on which one you change, you can get a very large effect or a smaller effect. Also, the other thing is, there's a, a drug called rapamycin that, um, and I did, we didn't know this when we talked 20 years ago, it wasn't known yet, and if you give worms or fruit flies or mice this drug, you can extend their lifespan. Humans can take that drug, and we don't know yet whether it will affect their aging and their lifespan or not. We don't know. Do we know about the side effects of that drug? Yes. So this drug has side effects. It's taken for people who have had organ transplants. Normally, the mm -hmm. immune system of the body will reject the organ. But if you take this drug, it doesn't. So it that comes with side effects. However, it's possible that if you had a lower dose of the drug or a slightly different drug, that maybe you could get some of some more benefits with, without the side effects. And actually, there are researchers um, at the University of Washington who are conducting a study in dogs now, pet dogs, giving them low doses of this drug, rapamycin, to see whether that will make them healthier and will extend their lifespans. I remember when we talked 20 years ago you painted this really lovely picture of when you changed the gene, they looked half their age. Yes. So what started to worry me, the more I thought about it, around year two after we talked, I started to think, well, if I live to 200, will I look and feel the way I did at 100? So for the next, after 100, for the next 100 years... I'm looking like a 100-year-old looks now and and getting worse. So is that the wrong way to look at it? Well, in other words, will we be, will, the longer we stay alive, the older we'll be for the longer time is my, my worry. Um, it's a good, that's a very good point. First of all, I have to just say, and I always say this because it's very true, we don't know that the drugs that we could make to hit these genes will have an effect at all in humans. We don't know. So that's yeah. the first thing. But let's suppose they do. Yeah. Let's just suppose. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, it would be as though it took you would age, it would take you two days to age as much as you now age in one day. Okay? So you would spend 
more t- a lot more time being young, <laughs> but then you would also spend more time being old. On the other hand, <laughs> right. there's one more thing, though, that's good, that is good, which is that in animals, these drugs, they have they seem to have very beneficial effects on diseases. There's less cancer. Uh, the heart is is much better. Um, it seems like the brain is better. You know, I I think I think I understand something that I didn't understand before we started the conversation, because I was thinking that we get all these reports that the longer we live as a society, the more among us will have Alzheimer's because. Uh, it hits older people more, so there'll be more cases. But it sounds like what you're saying is it's not just a question of living longer. It's a question of living longer with this gene altered or knocked out so that we are able to resist diseases like Alzheimer's. We seem to push, we seem to push them out. Yeah, like dogs. Dogs get old and infirm, and then they die. So they're they're old for a while, but not that long. Humans already spend more time being old and infirm than dogs do because they have this longer, longer lifespan and everything scales going from dogs to humans pretty much. So it's not really clear what will happen. But at least if we go by what we see in animals, the diseases of aging seem to be pushed out and they see that is later in time. And if anything, they seem less severe. In the course of this, you've discovered some things that had never been known before about what affects longevity. What what were some of those things? Um, Yeah, so now I think we know a lot more about what we would call the molecular mechanism that allows these worms to live so long. And one of the major um, mechanisms is, um, is a process called autophagy. So auto means self and phagy means eating. So it actually means eating yourself, which sounds horrible, but the cells of your body, they have a garbage disposal in them, which allows you to, actually a whole recycling station, which allows you to take parts of the body and grind them up and reuse the material. And that process is much higher in these long-lived animals. The ability of them probably to turn over unnecessary or unused material or damaged material and make new good mm. material out of it to sort of recycle its parts. Um, and that is, it's up in the long-lived mutants and it's required for their longevity. So if that process is not taking place, the process of recycling these parts is it like a building with old rusty pipes that they just keep using the rusty pipes because they're not replaced with new ones? I think so. It's kind of like that. Yeah. And also, uh-huh. as you age, um, there are you build up kind of um, gunk in your body called um, aggregated proteins, protein aggregates. And the, for example, the brains of Alzheimer's patients have some of this um plaque in it, which is just aggregating mm. proteins. And autophagy is a mechanism that can recycle that stuff. But we also know from work of other people that there are other ways that you may be able to stay young for a longer time. For example, I'll just tell you something that really blows my mind. It turns out that if you take an, a skin cell, for example, from an old animal, you can make, by cloning, you can make a a whole new animal out of it. Remember Dolly, the, mm-hmm. the sheep? So that's that's a case where an old cell 
loses its oldness and can become young again. Well, it turns out that it looks like it may be possible to to take an old animal and just briefly expose it to the same kinds of gene changes that happen when you take an old cell and make it young again. Um, If you just do it a little bit, it seems like you can rejuvenate aspects of the animal. For example, David Sinclair's lab at Harvard has shown that you can make old blind mice see again, Hmm. and you can... And the lab of um, Juan Carlos Belmonte at the Salk has shown that if you do these, you know, if you just pulse an animal a little bit with, just give it a little bit of this youthfulness, um, it's called a reprogramming or Yamanaka factor treatment, uh, that you can actually rejuvenate aspects of um, wound healing, the pancreas. You can take some mice that age prematurely you can extend their whole lifespans and make them young again or or younger than they would normally be. So that seems to be a completely different kind of biology than this resilience biology I've been talking to you about. It seems to be the ability to roll back the clock just Mm -hmm. a little bit. The problem is if you do it too much, then your whole body will turn into, um, will become like an embryo and you'll just disintegrate. So you have to be very careful about it. And no one knows how to do it in a careful way. But people are working on it. So I think that that's really a a very exciting thing that's happened to the field of aging, that now we have more ways possibly of of staying young longer. There's another lab, the lab of Judy Campisi and the labs of um, Jan van Dersen and other people have shown that um, there are cells that accumulate in your body called senescent cells when you get old. And they are inflammatory cells, so they cause inflammation. And they also seem to lead to a lot of diseases. And if you just get rid of them, then you can have beneficial effects on the, on health span. You're much healthier and you have beneficial effects on a lot of different kinds of diseases like perhaps cancer but, and also fibrosis. This is in mice. We don't know yet about humans. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of other possibilities on the horizon now. So it's exciting. You're working now on longevity at a company called Calico, right? Yes. What's changed in the past 20 years that I need to know about to keep up with you? I think that people in the world are much more excited about the possibility that we can really slow down aging in humans and that that will be beneficial. I'm not talking about doubling lifespan or anything like that. I'm just talking about aging more slowly and being able to use that Um, that ability also to counteract a lot of different age-related diseases all at once. And Calico is a company that um, uh, that was founded to learn more about the basic biology of aging and to harness that information so that people could live healthier lives. And I really wanted to be part of that. So I went to the company partly because I thought I could have an effect in an educational way. I've been working on aging for many years. I know a lot about it. So I thought I could help people in the company learn more about it quickly because people from all over with all sorts of different backgrounds joined the company. And also I thought maybe I could try to help actually slow down aging by by moving this kind of, um, helping to move these kinds of indications into the pipeline. Yeah, so, and Calico is a company that, 
that uh, it, it really is three things. It's a basic aging research operation. It's also a company that just takes innovative approaches to counteract age-related diseases. So for example, Calico has in the clinic new compounds to fight cancer. Okay, that may not have anything to do with aging. But then it also has this kind of sweet spot where, from my perspective, where you could also try to, to counteract diseases by introducing drugs that may slow down the aging process as well. And that's where I am. That's where I want to be. That's why I went there. So have you thought about some of the effects that may, be, may occur to society? I mean, you you may be ushering in a, a new era for us. And in the course of that, have you thought about some of the effects that society may have to, might have to worry about? Like if we have a whole lot of older people, do we have, do we have to worry about caring for them? Um, you know, the thing is, we it's complicated. Um, first of all, Science, it was only really the work that I was telling you about with these mutants that made you live so much longer, the worms live so much longer. Before that, people didn't think you could do anything about aging. But they did think you could do something about diseases. And the reason they thought that is because somebody gets, some people get the diseases and other people don't. So uh. why don't we make the ones that get the diseases more like the ones that don't? So we've been trying to cure diseases for a long time, and we've had a lot of success. So blood pressure medications, for example, many other things. And so the consequence, even antibiotics, the consequence of that is that people who would have died don't die. They live and they're older. Their, their rate of aging hasn't changed, but they're not dead. So as a consequence, the demographic distribution has shifted so that we have, and this is very well known, we have a higher percentage of older people in the population than mm. we used to. Um, and that's, it's an issue. It's an issue. Old people have a lot of wisdom. They have you know, a lot of ability to, to do things. So they're not, you know, it's, it's a good thing. But at the same time, it is a shift. When you talk about changing um, aging so that you age as much, it takes you two days to age as much as you would normally age in one day. If you snapped your fingers and suddenly everybody was aging twice as slowly, the world would look the same. You couldn't really tell the difference. Mm. It would just, you know, as long as reproduction is shifted out and so forth, it would looks pretty similar. So overpopulation is a problem. It was a problem with rabbits in Australia a while ago. They almost took over completely. It's, it can be a problem with any animal who doesn't have a, a, where there's no way to limit the population growth. And the main driver of population growth is how many children you have and how old you are when you have those children. And also, obviously, things that would kill you if you have predators or diseases and so forth. And so I think if we, if we doubled the lifespan but also had fewer children, which we're already having in the world anyway, or had them at a later age, which is also happening, there might not be the same, the kind of um, horrible effect on on the burden of the world that that you might you might fear. I also think though that changing people so that they can remain healthy for a longer period is a good time. There's always a chance you'll get run over by a car. There are things that happen to you. There are wars. There are things that happen to you that will happen independently of how old you are. So I think right. on average you would have 
a more vibrant society. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's all bells and written roses. It's not necessarily that way, but I don't think it's as horrible as it sometimes seems. You've also made me understand that, that I've been responding to the shiny object of longevity, when in fact, the point you made from the very beginning of our conversation is you're dealing with resilience and you're increasing a person's resilience, hopefully, so that what we think of as old age may not be old the same old age that our grandchildren or great-grandchildren will experience. That's true, yeah. When we come back from our break, Cynthia Canyon tells me how her discovery of the gene that controls aging was the result of her refusal to take no for an answer. She also reveals what she does in her own life to stay younger, longer. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Cynthia Kenyon. I saw a talk you gave to um, graduate students, and it sounded to me like your whole life has been one of innovation and exploration. You didn't take the, uh, the, path, the conventional path ever, it seems. You, you, in your work, you seem to have questioned the paradigms. Is that the way it really works? Even, yes. Even though it's the way everybody says it works. Yes. But, it, but just and, and your schooling and, and the time you took off. And tell me a little about that. Um, thank you. It was a Lasker leadership um, lecture that I gave to the graduate students, and it was just a couple weeks ago, actually. Um, yeah, I, I think this is true of a lot of scientists. I, I think somehow, I think, I, I don't know, Maybe my father was too dogmatic, so I started thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe that's not true. <laughs> I don't know what it was, or maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just born into you. But I always did um, I always did question authority. In fact, I was diagnosed, not diagnosed. I had a friend who saw a therapist. She had a problem. And I was her friend, so I, went to the, I was there one time when the therapist saw her, and he pointed a finger at me and said, this girl resents authority. And I was like, 10 at the time. And you were 10. I think so. He just said that about me gratuitously. I was not his patient, but I was just there. Anyway, um, yes, I think that that's always been something about me and always trying to think through things by, for myself, always inventing little gadgets. And yeah, I've always done that. And I think that's, I'm not the only one, obviously, who does that, but I do. And I think that also, you know, I think sometimes there are, there's sort of a social thing where if someone who's higher than you are in the hierarchy tells you that you're wrong, I, I somehow don't respond to that. It's like I, I'm blind to it. I, I don't see it. I don't, I mean, I may, I hear it, 
but I think, well, I don't know. Whereas some people I think might might respond. I might not. Get, get redirected by it. It's, yeah. I don't want to compare myself to a pit bull because I'm not a pit bull at all. But pit bulls, they attack people, which I don't. But they do because they don't respond to the alpha cues, the cues of a hierarchy that say, I'm the boss, you're subordinate to me, behave yourself. They don't respond to that. And that's why they're so dangerous. Now, I'm not dangerous. I should, I should be careful. I've never used this analogy before. But I don't think I really respond to someone just saying, oh, you're wrong. I mean, it makes me feel bad. Like when I wanted to work on aging, um, people said things like, well, they had a million reasons why you could never get a worm to live longer. First, there were, and there were silly reasons, but they said them in a very dogmatic way. And one person just said to me, you know, Cynthia, I've known people who try to study aging, and it's like they think the, they fall off the edge of the world. It's like the world, you think it's it's round, but it's really flat, and off you go. And he said that to me in a really, he's a very smart person, and he said that to me in a very kind of derogatory manner, like, you're you're a fool, I'm much better than you are. You know that that tone of voice, uh, it's putting you yeah. down. And I just, it hurt, but I just thought, it just sort of made me want to do it even more, you know? And I think there's another thing, when, you know, when you're trying to do something new, it took me a really long time to get anyone to study aging because at the time it was a real backwater and the idea was if you studied aging you probably weren't a very good scientist and there was also nothing to study because you just fell apart the evolutionary oh. biologists they had all these reasons for why you couldn't there couldn't be genes for aging like you wouldn't see their effects until after you reproduce so you, selection couldn't act on them so there were these kinds of reasons but anyway um but i thought i had other reasons for thinking maybe you could. Evolution produced long-lived animals, so maybe it's possible. It must be genes for aging because you have different lifespans in the world in different species, and they came from gene changes during evolution. So to me, that was pretty simple. It had to be possible. But anyway, so I think it took a little bit of um, not caring or not letting it get to you, you know, just pushing on because when you look at it in a kind of rational way, you think, well, I don't see why it couldn't happen. And maybe everybody else is wrong and I'm right. Maybe it's possible. So, But then you have to come up with the goods. Yes, you which do. You, which you did. You have, to, you have to show experimentally that it's not just yeah. de defying authority. That's right. Exactly. And I think I was lucky. I mean, I still think the reasons I had for thinking that there would be genes for aging are correct. And... So there are, and and so that's good. But, you know, there might not have been. But, you know, that's just life. You have to just try. You know, when you were talking about nature making some animals, allowing some animals to live longer than others, have you or has anybody done work to just see what their DNA is like? Do they have less effective genes of the kind that you found that if you knocked out in the worms, it would promote longevity. It, it sounds, sounds like not a hard thing to do to collect DNA from different kinds of animals. That's been done, and there are some nice examples. There's, there are some bats that live to be almost 50, 50 years old. And mm. these bats, their DNA has been sequenced, and it looks like they have the same mutation that we found in our little worms, They're in mm. the bats naturally. And so the idea would be that maybe that's one reason the bats live longer. On the other hand, some other animals have been 
the DNA has been sequenced and it's just not obvious. And in humans, now there are people who live a, a very long time, who live to be 100, and several people have taken, um, taken DNA from these people and looked to see whether they might have changes in the genes that that we discovered to affect lifespan. And there does seem to be a higher frequency of changes in these genes. Mm. But there are other things too, like their DNA repair mechanisms seem to be better. However, on the other hand, the long-lived mutants do have better DNA repair. So it's consistent with the idea. It's consistent with the idea, yeah. So let me get even more personal. How do you feel about longevity personally? Do you have an age you'd like to live to or you just kind uh, of see what happens? Or, or how do you feel about your own life? Well, I'm obsessed with staying young, totally obsessed with it. It's kind of terrible. I exercise, I eat this diet, which I've eaten since I met you 20 years ago, which is lo- less sugar and less of things that turn into sugar. It's called the low glycemic index diet. Um, this doesn't mean I, this doesn't mean you eat less spaghetti, does it? I don't. Well, I eat the sauce. I love the sauce, but I don't eat the noodles. <laughs> I do too. I don't. I could eat the sauce like soup. I love it. But, it's great. Yeah, I love spaghetti yeah. sauce. So, so what else? Tell me more. Tell me because you're 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 into youthfulness and longevity, which I, I assume everyone has some interest in. What are, what are what are your other uh, stratagems? I don't know. Those are the two things that I do. I um, I I try not to get too heavy, but I don't want to get too thin either. When you get older, being too thin is not good for you. So I try to keep mm. my weight more or less okay. But the main thing I do is to stay away from sugar. I think I was a sugar addict, and I think sugar is really bad for you. So I mm. personally think that, and I think there's a lot of evidence that supports that. It can it can promote diabetes, for example. So I try to keep, like I said my intake of things that are sweet or things things that turn into sugar, like potato chips and potatoes, that kind of thing, right. low. Bread, low. You seem to be focusing more, again, I went for longevity, but you're going for youthfulness and vigor and a, a body that can resist disease and falling apart rather than living forever. Yes. Oh, well, I wouldn't, no one wants to live, no one wants to be, you know... In, I mean, you don't want to be really sick, and especially if you're in pain. No, people don't want that, of course. So you don't, you don't want that. I mean, the other thing I'm doing is working at Calico, trying to do everything I can, and talking to people in in my field, and trying to do whatever I can to help the whole enterprise keep people healthier right. for longer. Because I think it's possible. So that's what I do with my waking time for for myself and other people. Well. Our time has run out in terms of the longevity of our conversation. But we always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game for of the course, questions? Of course, of course. And they can be quick answers. You don't have to, but let's see what happens. What do you wish you really understood? Um, more about how to slow down aging and um, in a healthy way. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? Yeah, that's really interesting. What you want to do is to try to figure out, try to go into that person's brain and look out through their eyes and try to see the world as they see it. Try as hard as you can to see the world as they see it. And then, because if you don't, 
it's there's too much of a, a divide between you. So you try to do that. And then you try to, I try to um, kind of get on their side and show them examples of why they probably are, are not correct about something. You know, I, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? That question. <laughs> I love the attitude you put in that. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? How do you do it? You know, Google did a study of what makes a group work really well. And mm -hmm. what they found, there's many things, but one thing is if everybody's, everybody in the room, say there are 10 people, if everybody speaks as much as everybody else speaks, if each of those, if the, the, the people who want to talk more talk less, and the people who are silent talk more. So one thing I'll try to do is to weave that into the conversation that, you know, oh. you have been to study. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> do people get the hint? Sometimes. Another thing that I'll do very often is I'll say, hey, Ellen or Sam, you've been really quiet. What do you think? I do that very often. Very often. Yeah. 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 Good. But I don't say to people, you're talking too much. Please stop. Although my husband will no. kick me if I talk too much. He's, he has instructions <laughs> oh, no. to kick me, to shut me up. <laughs> I'm usually pretty good, but sometimes I get going and it's pretty awful. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner party. And you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a true, authentic conversation? I'll try to find out um, what they like, you know, what their hobbies are, what they like. Uh, I don't. I think asking them what they do is possible, but it's not as it's not as good, you know. But I'll I'll try to find out, you know, what what they like, and then that's what they want to talk about. And I'm interested in pretty much everything, so. It, it, it works pretty well if I do that. Next to last, what gives you confidence? Ah, affirmation, actually. Well, two things. Number one, there are two things that give me confidence, and they're kind of opposite. One is, let's suppose um, someone I respect says something really nice about my work, like you said earlier, that you saw my last year leadership lecture and that you liked it. That made me feel good and it gave me confidence. It just suddenly my the serotonin levels, if that's what it is, <laughs> they went up, you know. But another thing is just this internal certainty, like I felt about aging. You know, if you have a, a worldview that you think is correct and, you know, all the facts fit together and they tell you something, um, one of my favorite examples is um, Stan Prusner, who discovered prions, these proteins that had a strange, um, they had a strange form, and they could cause other proteins to adopt their strange forms. So these caused diseases like mad cow disease. And he was a doctor, a young doctor, and he realized someone told him that if you had this disease, it could be passed from one person to another, but there was no fever. And everybody thought that it was a virus, but he thought, no, it's not a virus, because if it were a virus, there would be a fever. And there were other things you would have if it was a virus, and people didn't have that. And so he had that internal conviction that it could not be a virus. And so he pressed forward and forward and forward and found that it was actually just a protein that was the disease-causing 
speech, you know, um, entity. And I think he did that because he had internal confidence in in his his view of the world from facts. And I think that's very very powerful. Yeah. Okay. Last question: What book changed your life? Well, I have to say the biggest one was Jim Watson's book, as in Watson and Crick, mm. on um, the discoveries of the DNA structure. Uh, he wrote a book called The Molecular Biology of the Gene. And when I was in high school, I didn't know what to major in because I liked everything and I, I just couldn't figure it out. And I also liked nature. And so I didn't. I was a junior in college and I still didn't have a major, so I dropped out and um, decided to go back to nature. And I kind of... I spent my time doing things like um, solving chess endgames and breaking codes and writing, helping people write term papers and stuff like that, things that were kind of intellectual, but I really didn't know what I was going to do. And my mother was an administrator at the physics department um, where I lived, in the university town where I lived, and she brought home Jim Watson's book, a little book on the 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 gene. And I'd never heard about this. This was a long time ago. And I didn't know that genes can, can get switched on and off. I thought biology was really boring, all descriptive. This was in the um, the 1970s or in late, late 60s, probably the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and I learned that genes could get switched on and off and it was logical. And I ran back to college and majored in, in genes, in biology and genetics and gene switches. And that changed my life in a very practical way. You know, it, it didn't change me as a person, but it changed me in terms of it gave me a, a career, which was... You may, that book may have changed not only your life, but the lives of millions it of other did. people. It was amazing. And it, I didn't know anything about it. My mother happened to bring it home. I happened to open it. I saw these pictures and I went, this is amazing. So it was pretty... It was pretty <laughs> I don't know what great. would have happened without that book. I don't know. That's great. <laughs> this has been so much fun talking with you, Cynthia. We have to get together more frequently than tw every 20 years. That would be very nice. I, I really enjoy I it. Thanks too. so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Cynthia Canyon is Professor Emeritus at UC San Francisco. She's also Vice President for Aging Research at Calico Life Sciences. You can find her Lasker Leadership Lecture that we talked about on YouTube, and it's well worth a listen. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Michio Kaku. He's a theoretical physicist who's also a brilliant communicator. His latest book is The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. 
The immediate practical implication of the theory of everything is nothing. It's not going to affect you and me. I'll be very blunt about it. However, it'll answer some of the deepest philosophical, religious questions of all time. Uh, was there a beginning? Uh, what happened before the beginning? What happened before Genesis? It could answer these questions once and for all, whether there are other universes, whether there are gateways to these other universes. And then, of course, I often get the question, if there are other universes, then is Elvis Presley still alive in another parallel universe? And the answer is yes. He could very well still be alive, not in our universe, but in another parallel universe, he could still be belting out those hits, hit after hit. Michio Kaku, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Kerry Cahoy. She and her team build mini-satellites called CubeSats, and they get launched into space by piggybacking on rockets that are launching much larger satellites. Watching something you've built leave the Earth and get to orbit on a rocket, it, it's, it's a, quite a feeling to see something that you've worked on get so far away from, from where you're stuck. And then getting the first contact and signal down that lets you know it's working. <laughs> That's the next part. You don't always get that. But if you do, you, you definitely grow an affinity for the satellite, almost like it is your child or, or your dog or cat or something. It's, it's, it's like part of your family and you look forward to seeing it again and hearing from it. To find out how these tiny satellites help weather forecasting and even help spotting faraway planets... Listen in to my conversation with Kerry Cahoy next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.